Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is episode 200 of the show, and we have a special show lined up for you today with uh, Mr. Jason Block. He is the CEO of BrewDog USA, and he also was the president of Homage for a while. I really think that you guys will learn a lot from this episode. As always, we hope you enjoy it. And we also had a special guest interviewer joining us, Mr. Tim Trad. And Tim is the host of Only in Seabus, a podcast about things only in Seabus. And uh, you can check him out on Instagram at Only in Seabus. So go check him out, support. And again, hope you guys enjoy this interview. Before we get to that episode, though, as usual, we got to take a quick moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus, and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to work with like-minded businesses to raise money and participate in large-scale volunteer efforts and improve educational opportunity for youth in our community. To learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That's smallbizcares.org. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to a special episode of Conquering Columbus. Today, we're talking with Jason Block, the CEO of BrewDog USA, having taken over the role in January of this year. And before BrewDog, Jason was the president at Homage, but uh, he left that role in 2018. And between that role and taking over at BrewDog, Jason co-founded Interspace, a co-working space aimed at health professionals. And we also happen to have a special guest interviewer today, Tim Trad, who hosts the Only in Seabus podcast. Mm-hmm. Check them out on Instagram at Only in Seabus. So it's going to be an exciting show. Really looking forward to uh, talking to Jason about everything BrewDog has going on and his other experiences as an entrepreneur and leader. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Jason and Tim. 
Thanks for having us, man. Yeah, you guys want to just take a quick moment to introduce yourself so everyone knows who's who? Let's let him sure, go first. yeah. Thank you for having me. Um, so I'm Jason. Uh, I am here at BrewDog now. I've been at Homage. I started Space from Columbus. My parents own Block's Bagels, which is a, a popular bagel spot in Bexley. I grew up working there. Uh, went to Ohio State, went to Capitol after that, so I'm Columbus through and through. Awesome, Tim. Yeah, I'm, my name's Tim. Uh, I run a little blog called Only MC Bus, and my mind's just blown that you that you were that your dad started Blocks Bagels because <laughs> I grew up eating that like when my parents transplanted here. So, uh, yeah, we're just a big fan of Columbus. I grew up here. I love the city. I love telling stories about what's going on, and I'm excited to team up with you guys today. Yeah, it's exciting. So, you know, typically the first place we like to start is just, Jason, talk a little bit about life leading up today. So, I mean, you mentioned some of it, right? Your family owns Blocks Bagels, but talk to us a little bit about everything, you know, highlights, early life, college, growing up, whatever stands out to you along the path. Yeah, I think, uh, I'm sure we'll get to this later. Obviously, recently, life has been focused around coronavirus and all the changes that's hap- that that has led to in our business, in our lives. Uh, so that's been pretty consuming. But Going back further to life before the last few weeks, you know, being from Columbus, uh, Ohio State was a great opportunity when that came up coming out of uh, high school, which I went to Bexley. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, So after college, I um, figured I'd go back to school. I went to law school at Capitol after that. What did you study in undergrad? Political science, yeah. Uh, okay, again, so a good setup for law school. Pretty, pretty typical, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you find people with all different backgrounds end up in law school. It kind of can be a catch-all for, I think it's half people who aren't sure what they want to do professionally and half who think being a lawyer is like what you see on TV. There's probably some other more noble people in that um, makeup, but uh, I was more in the I wasn't sure what I wanted to do and knew it was a great education. Uh, so I went to Capital uh, for law school, had a great experience. It was really difficult, but it pushed me and you know, made me actually care about school and doing well for the first time. And then after that, uh, my first job out of law school, uh, a guy named Mike Schiff, who runs Schiff Capital Group, they have a ton of developments downtown and in the short north, took a chance on me and I did real estate developments and a lot of the transactional legal work for him, learned a ton. It was a great time to be in real estate because it was coming out of the Great Recession. So there was a lot of opportunity, a lot of deals were happening. And that led to uh, joining Homage, and that was in 2012. Uh, The founder of Homage is a guy named Ryan Vessler, a good friend of mine. We went to middle school together. He offered me an opportunity there, and I joined. And Ryan is a very, very creative, passionate person who, you know, when you think about Homage, those are probably two things that come to mind. But as the business grew, there were a lot of things that he wanted help with around the business, from finances to HR to planning out growth and working on strategy. And those were things that I worked on when I joined Homage and had a great run there, which eventually led to being at BrewDog today. So how many years do you spend in real estate before you make the jump to Homage? I was doing that for just over two years. Okay. Yeah. And, and that prepped you pretty well for all aspects of running a business. When you jumped on how much, were there, were there yeah. some learning curves? Yes. It prepped me for some things, but definitely not all. Uh, you know, retail apparel is a pretty competitive business. There's a lot of people who do it. The, the uh, barrier for entry for 
making t-shirts is fairly low so to stand out from the crowd you have to be really good at it and do something different and uh, homage and Ryan had been doing that before I got there but fortunately uh, I was given a chance to learn on the job and to make some mistakes fortunately none that were too detrimental to the business but to say that I came in and knew what I was doing uh, I'd be kidding myself I mean I I definitely brought something to the team that they needed but I learned uh, along the way as well I almost wore a Ric Flair shirt today. <laughs> I like literally was about to wear it, and uh, I didn't. Now I'm kind of bummed. Yeah. Some of the, the WWD are some of the like best shirts that they do. I'm not. A, I've never grew up watching it. I wasn't like allowed to. We didn't have cable or anything like that. But that shirt is just just one of my favorites. That yeah. like Ric Flair Woo almond shirt. So. Can you replicate the sound for us though? Maybe just once. I don't know. I don't think I have <laughs> it in me. Not, not, not live on the podcast. See, <laughs> yeah, I, I see his levels already. I'm peaking. I don't want to. I don't want to blow out any ears. Right. Yeah. It would. Uh, yeah. I do tend to keep the levels a little higher than most people. Yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm kind of a long uh, guy. But that's uh, so. Jumping from that, I guess you know what made you decide. Hey, let's take another path. You know, you go from homage to uh, deciding to find your own business. So when did you start thinking like, hey, you know what, like. Got this idea? Was it was it something you came up with, or was it a this is I got to take another path? Like how did that yeah. plan out? So I had been in homage for about six years, and it went from joining the company with about you know, twelve employees, a uh, relatively small warehouse and office that was one on the east side by the airport, to growing to having stores in multiple states. Uh, we took on investment from Express Inc. Uh, and. The business just had changed a lot, and uh, I just felt like it was time both for me and for the business to make a change. And I had been in my role there uh, long enough and worked with enough people to know, you know, when people had reached that point of it was time to do something different and they didn't proactively do it, it didn't usually end well, and I just, you know, told myself I was never going to be that person. So when I had that sense that it was time for something new and different, I had a conversation with Ryan and uh, also with Steve, who's the CFO there and also a good friend of mine, that it was time and let's find a way to work into a transition. And from that conversation, it was eight months until I left. So, you know, making sure that things were left in a good place and that, you know, it was done in a way that we all could feel really good about it and remain good friends was was definitely the key. Um, once I had made that decision to go, I started talking to a uh, someone I've known in the community for a long time, Brett Kaufman. Uh, he founded Kaufman Development and has done amazing things in the community. Uh, he approached me about the inner space idea. It was something that he had thought about for years and was a passion project that was in line with a lot of the things that he does and how he lives his life day in and day out. So it was his idea. Uh, and when he knew I was looking for something different and when my timeline with homage was firmed up, uh, we started having a conversation about doing interspace together. So, so talk about the zero to one of that. You have this idea, you and Brett sit down together, obviously in alignment with what you wanted to be in the vision. How do you start to bring it to creation? What do the initial steps look like? Yeah, um, you know, there's probably no right way to do it but what we did was you know it started with the idea and, and maybe talk more about that too yeah what the idea so what was the idea great question so interspace essentially it takes co-working and a salon lofts model where people who are you know in a certain trade or certain industry 
or certain practice uh, and, and really creates a space for them, but that has a lot of flexibility that exists in a more modern co-working shared economy way. So the, the thought was, you know, if you're a therapist, if you're a life coach, if you're a masseuse, if you're, you know, anyone in the mental health or wellness space, there really was no space designed for you to work in other than renting your own office. And a lot of times when people get their start, they're hesitant to take on a lot of risk. They haven't built up their client's uh, base. So they end up just finding random one-off offices that don't really match the experience. You know, you're going to better yourself. You're going to try and invest in yourself. And a lot of times they can be kind of crusty makeshift offices. You know, it's an attorney's office and they had one extra office in the back or just random places throughout town. So the thought was, why don't we design a space for these individuals? One, because it doesn't exist. And two, all of those fields are growing fields. Generationally, I think people are much more interested in experiences over things. And this fits in with that, investing in themselves, uh, health, wellness, mental health, personally, professionally. Uh, so we really took that model uh, to those individuals. A lot of people would say, well, you know, there's WeWork and there's Cohatch and there's a hundred others. What are you doing that's different? Well, all of those things require a level of discretion. Some even have HIPAA requirements. So the existing co-working spaces are built around transparency and collaboration and open spaces and glass walls. And those are all good things. But if I'm going to meet with my therapist, I don't necessarily want to be on display and yeah. I need it to be private. So it took a model that we're seeing grow throughout society to a group of people who the physical setup had to be very different for it to work at all. Um, and I mentioned salon lofts as well. That's just another example of they took a salon model or you take like a mental health practice model, but you make it so that everyone who works in it can own their own practice. There's an empowerment element to it as well about people owning their future, you know, owning their business that was very attractive to us and why this is a good idea. Interestingly enough, I feel like you'd have like increased privacy as a patient if you were going to a place like Interspace because no one knows who you're going to see. There's a bunch of people there. Uh, but uh, that's just a small, I don't know, I'm just throwing that out there at this point. But uh, so, how was Interspace received and, you know, how, how involved are you today with that now that you're taking yeah. over here? Bruno? So uh, I guess the part of the question that I didn't answer that will lead into yours is when you start a business, what did we do? We went through the creative process. We um, then surveyed about 40 different professionals that are, were in the fields that we were going to try and target to see, do you think this is a good idea? Is this a need? Is this, is this something that you would be interested in if we did it? And that led to a lot of positive results, but it was fairly anecdotal. So we also had to make sure that from a business standpoint, it was going to be viable. So then we built our business model. You know, what are our costs going to be from building it out to operating it day to day to how many people need to need to be staffed in here to how many members or practitioners would we need to have to support this in an ongoing way. So we went through that whole exercise, did all the creative, websites, social handles, all of those things came together. Um, design the space, uh, it's going to be in the gravity in Franklinton. So, you know, a lot of things came together over the course of a year. Um, but it was really, you know, right when we were, we'd announced it and we were getting ready to start building it when um, 
someone from BrewDog had approached me about this opportunity. Uh, and it was a very, very difficult uh, decision for me because I was passionate about what we were doing. And uh, I, I think it's a great idea and one that I think is going to be really successful. But at the time when I was approached about this and as we had a number of conversations, this just uh, BrewDog was the right decision for me at this time and for my family. Uh, so that's what I ended up doing. Um, but in terms of what my role with Interspace is today, I'm really just an advocate for them, a champion of what they're doing. I have transitioned a number of my responsibilities to make sure that it continues happening. But uh, it's just something that I am proud to have been a part of, and I'm excited to see what happens for it in the future. So talk about the BrewDog experience, how that rolls out. You know, so somebody approaches you. Um, how did you feel about the brand? Obviously, a very unique brand that they bring to the table, and, and I'm assuming they're very heavy on culture when they go through the recruiting process. Yeah, so, you know, BrewDog started in Scotland in 2012. If you fact check me, it might be 2011, but it's right there. Um, and uh, it was two guys who are uh, 37. Uh, they started in one of their parents' garage, and they built the company up from that to be, you know, the largest craft brewer in Europe. And uh, they brought it to the States in 2017. Uh, culture is a very big part of the company. Um, you know, it's a scrappy, you know, try and get things done. Uh, we, we operate in dog ears, so we, everything that we do, we try and do much faster than anyone else would do it. And that is absolutely part of how we operate both here and in Scotland today. Um, but I think there were some similarities. You know, I mentioned how it's two 37-year-old founders for BrewDog. You know, Amish has a 37-year-old founder who I worked with for six years, and I do think that experience was really helpful in my conversations um, in, in uh, interviewing with BrewDog because, um, you know, working with founders, I think, is a, if you haven't done it, they, there are some aspects to how they work that I, I have seen, at least, that are very similar. There's a lot of creative energy, a lot of passion, um, you know, it's very personal to them, like this is, like this was their idea and they've seen it through from before it existed to where it is today and uh, it's not just business it is personal and having experience having worked in that dynamic i think was helpful in entering that dynamic again here um, both in the interview process and then since i've actually been here as well hey there conquerors we're going to take a quick break here to talk about one of our sponsors here on the show Studio 301. Mike and I, we've been working with Studio 301 on our rebrand, doing our website, doing some new photography, working on some logo adjustments, and just really positioning Conquering Columbus uh, in a more professional light. And I can tell you, Mike, it's been the funnest experience and the easiest experience I've ever had working with any type of creative agency. They come to the table with all kinds of awesome ideas that we're really excited about and everything that we've come up with so far and that we're about to put out is is awesome. I'm super excited about it. Yeah, I've, I haven't been more excited about pretty much anything since we've done the podcast. Like, I really enjoy talking to all our guests, but this rebrand is just painted in a whole new light. And, you know, Kyle and his team have been a pleasure to work with. They've gone out of their way to go above and beyond to make this thing really special. So I think we're really excited to release this rebrand to everybody out there listening, and uh, I hope you guys love it as much as we do. And one of the best things is the rebrand not only positions Conquering Columbus as a whole, but all of our guests. 
and more of a uh, professional and clean and formalized look that you know they deserve. We have super, super high quality, amazing people on here, and I think that this is going to represent them really well. So it's been great. So thanks again to Studio 301. Yeah, if you guys want to learn more about Studio 301, go check out the links down in the show notes. Help support Kyle and local teams here in Columbus. And uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the interview. So what what makes because Brewdog, hearing as someone who started businesses and, and succeeded a little and failed a lot, uh, seeing somebody start that you know young, only 2012 and then as big as they are now, what makes them? Because everybody just like T-shirts, everybody's making them. So everybody's got a, a thing in their garage and making beer. What about Brewdog to you made it go from you know a garage in 2012 to not even 10 years later? Would you say 101 bars around the world? Yeah, there's 101 bars around the world. Um, and the largest craft beer company in Europe. Yeah, so what, what uh, was it that like made that? I mean, I, I, that's like a big, broad question, but I'm just curious, yeah, what I, did you have that everybody else doesn't? Sure, and you know, I've had to do my homework and I've, yeah. I've worked with the founders now for months, but um, I think I would say this of any founder, and I, and I don't mean this in a you know, negative or derogatory way, but I think timing, luck, determination, work ethic, all of those things are factors for any company to be yeah, successful, perfect storm. Um, you know, I, whether it's Amazon or whether it's BrewDog or whether it's something that's far smaller. Conquering uh, Columbus is the third one. There you go. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes, you uh, beat me to it. A lot of things have to come together. And so, you know, I'll use BrewDog as, as the example here. You know, when James and Martin started BrewDog, you know, they got connected with a guy named Michael Jackson, who is one of the world's, you know, leading beer uh, critics and experts and pretty he, good at music too. I was gonna say, yeah, former, <laughs> former musician, yeah, um, world's leading pop star. <laughs> we got we got tons of bad jokes. We can keep yeah. it going. I mean, it's not. Yeah. I'm getting the feeling that you know, based on that bad joke, that we yeah, got to do a lot of more. I'm, I'm more I'm more interested in the story than we're butchering right. it. Well, Sorry. You know, <laughs> just just guessing by looking at the face around. The table, I'm probably the only dad here, so dad jokes should, right. You know, rest with me. But but you're, no no you're, we got you're you covered. that. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so. Uh, and he, at that time, they were just, you know, essentially home brewers, but who were starting to sell it. And he loved their beer, and he told them to quit their day jobs, and they went out on a limb, and they did it. And, um, you know, it's a lot of faking it till you make it. They got a opportunity to get in front of Tesco, which is the largest supermarket chain in uh, the U.K., um, and they, Tesco put in a big order that they had no business taking because yep. they didn't know how they were going to fulfill, but they took it and they figured out how to do it and they took that opportunity and, you know, they used bank financing. You know, this is a very capital intensive business. The brewery that um, you guys just walked through, um, if anyone else ever wants to come, once uh, we're back open again to the public, it's a really cool thing to see, but walking through it, you see it's an expensive endeavor. Mm -hmm. And that's the case for any brewery. It's just everything in there uh, comes with a big price tag. One of the things that they did when they really reached the end of the bank financing to grow the business, um, they had this idea to raise money from their fans. And not like a Kickstarter where, like, I'm just going to give you money and send me something. It's give us money and we're actually going to give you shares, but we're not a publicly traded company. Uh, Interesting. How does that work? Well, when they started in the UK, um, they were an innovator there, and the laws were set up so they could do it. That wasn't even allowed to be done in the US oh, at sure. that point in yeah. time. So it wasn't until um, you know, the mid 
you know, 2010s that the law has changed here, uh, Regulation A funding is what it's called in the states. Uh, so we do do that here. We have raised uh, over $10 million in the U.S. And it's not just a Kickstarter where people get something. You truly get shares of the company. These people are owners. But over, you know, the 13 years of BrewDog existing, uh, you know, 75 plus million dollars have been raised by our fans and by our advocates and now there are shareholders um, that has really fueled the growth of this business and not only did that give capital to the business to grow but you now have you know an army of 135,000 people across the world who are actually owners and because they're owners it's their favorite brewery it's their favorite beer they're telling their friends about it you have these built-in ambassadors yeah. and evangelists that have become an amazing you know there are harshest critics for sure because we have yeah. a forum where we all communicate and if they don't like things that we're doing they tell us but they're also our biggest advocates yeah. and um, it, it was a huge tool not just from a capital standpoint but from a PR standpoint from an ambassador standpoint that ha that allowed this company to grow exponentially um, and had they not had that idea at that point in time and had the laws in the U.S. not changed so they could do it here, a lot of things that happened wouldn't have happened the way that they did. But they took advantage of it and they were smart and they were strategic. And that has allowed the business to be where it is today. That's awesome. What do they say? Luck is when opportunity meets preparation. It sounds like uh, one of those instances. But uh, I think good place to kind of talk. So you started in January, right? December, we'll December, enough, yeah. December, January. So pretty normal first few months on the job. <laughs> huh? uh, you know, the first few months were um, we really do move at a quick speed, and we from raising uh, equity through individual investors to having a hotel on our main campus here in Canal Winchester to having uh, six bars in Indiana, Ohio, and Pennsylvania to having a brewery where we distribute to 15 states across the US. We have a lot of things that we do, a lot of different lines of business. And then you throw in the past couple weeks. And really it was just when I felt like I was starting to get my footing and you know understand our business well and, and start to make um, some pivots for the future, uh, the world changed and it changed dramatically overnight. So, so how have you been able to adapt and deal with that and to uh, maybe piggyback on that? What do you think will change moving forward, if anything, about how you guys are running the business? Well, just to paint a picture on when I say things change dramatically, w what I mean, three, four weeks ago, it's hard to keep track now, but the week that all of the coronavirus things started to feel heavy, but before anywhere was ordered to close, we started having conversations of, what if we have to close and what would we do but it still felt like it was something that wasn't going to happen and would be avoided um, and then we left on a friday under the understanding that things could be very different on monday but we're just going to have to wait and see that sunday ohio ordered all bars and restaurants closed um, followed quickly by pennsylvania indiana so we came in Monday morning, and we were communicating over the weekend as a team, both our team here in the U.S. and, and globally um, in the U.K. And we, we came in on Monday um, where literally, this isn't an exaggeration, 70% of our revenue had evaporated overnight. Um, that's our bars and our restaurants. Our hotel started taking an immediate hit. People weren't traveling. And our 
distribution to bars and restaurants throughout the U.S., all of those things came to a screeching halt. And, you know, we are a scrappy business. I know we do have a footprint that exists um, not just in the U.S., but in other places around the world. But we're still in a growth mode. Uh, we're not in a position of conserving funds and paying out profits. All of the money that we bring in as a company, we're using to fuel growth. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we were in a healthy position. We weren't overextended. But when you do the math of if you shut off 70% of your revenue, but you keep your spend constant, how long can you continue to exist as a business? And the runway was not very long. So we had to act swiftly and dramatically to curtail all non-essential spending. We had to find ways to um, really downsize our team. That was very painful and something that we never wanted to do or saw coming. But you know, our number one goal, uh, on top of making sure that we have people are as healthy as possible, and that includes our team, whether they're still with us or not, but is to survive as a company because if you know, we're not here in two months to have jobs for everyone to come back to, paying them for a few more weeks until the business has to close isn't going to do anyone any good. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what we did was we actually didn't lay anyone off technically. It's a bit of a fine distinction, but it, it's one that had a lot of thought uh, or, or good intentions is maybe a better way of saying it behind it. What we did was we did a force reduction of hours, which allowed all of our team members who we had to make really difficult decisions with keep their company health care but also file for unemployment and what we didn't want to do was pull all the benefits away from people especially during a health crisis we wish we could do more we wish we were able to continue uh, employing people in perpetuity but we want to have a job to offer them in a couple months when we weather the storm so that we can start to get back to normal so um, things changed really really quickly uh, and over the past two weeks, um, you know, we have we are a much smaller company from a team perspective than we were. Um, we know that that's going to change. I, I think when that changes is the question, not if. And uh, I do think the world is going to be different coming out of this. I don't think there's a switch that's going to flick and it's, hey, everybody, come back immediately. Like, we are going to have to build back up to the business that we were. I know we can do it and I know we will, but it's going to take time. And you know, even if we could flip a switch and have everyone come back, what we don't know, and I don't think what anyone knows, is, you know, when restaurants open back up, are people going to be comfortable? I'm, I'm sure many are, but will everyone who is going rest to restaurants and bars feel comfortable going back the next day? I I'm sure there are going to be some people that aren't, and it's going to take some time. Yeah, there's going to be a there's going to be a large effect on the economy after this. I'm not in any way a professional ec ec <laughs> economist, but being in, in small small businesses, real estate, things like that, and watching little things affect it big, shutting the whole world down for this this long, I'm super curious to see kind of the the blowback, you know? It's been such a brutal shift. Yeah. It's the word I can think of. I mean, you look at like the jobless claims, today was over 3 million. Uh, and there's, I don't know if there's anything that's quite had that significant of an impact this quickly. And anybody's lifetime i was know? doing the math with uh, shannon harden from the city council and it was like 20 percent are in there's like two different areas of employment in columbus that were basically you know bars service industry hospitality and i think it was like almost 20 percent were in that field that just it was cut instantly and i've never been yeah. involved in something that had just 20 percent of a workforce f instantly gone not like oh no let's prepare for this just 
you know, if Columbus they're not the same. Columbus is a huge retail town, too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, they're the largest I, in fashion, that's for sure. And uh, I, I think a lot of those businesses have tried to minimize the immediate impact, but we saw yesterday uh, DSW let everyone go. Yeah. And, and the longer this goes, I mean, companies just can't not have revenue and keep paying people. I, it's an ideal that I wish we could. I'm mm-hmm. not, you know, I, everyone deserves an income and to have a livelihood. I'm not saying that they don't, but I think a lot of these businesses are just worried about, we want to have a job for people when this is over, as mm-hmm. opposed to paying people for a few weeks now and then not having a business, because that really wouldn't help in the long run either. Right, and it's it's difficult to understand when you're the person on the other end of it, but it's it's so true, right? You can't make a, there's it puts you in a spot where there's no feel good decision. There's no decision that feels good, but you got to make the one that's going to have the best outcome for everybody. I think what's most promising about it, though, that aspect that you mentioned about the run rate and people's attitude towards this, I think I think a general consensus uh, for the population is they understand that if you didn't let me go, there would be no business to come back to in the future. As opposed to in 08, I think there's a lot of anger going through that, and it wasn't that type of energy out there. So I think the bounce back, again, not an economist by any stretch of the means, but mm-hmm. I feel like the energy is a large part of it, and I think the energy is in the right direction. But it, it's crazy when you turn off the switch and you just continue to keep burning cash, and it's like you have these massive engines, and it's something's got to go at yeah. some point, you know. So uh, it really doesn't care, matter how much you care about your employees. Yeah, we'll definitely bounce back, and I will. I do want to just call out like we have an amazing, amazing team, and when we had to deliver this news, they could not have been more understanding, and like we were prepared for people to be upset and angry, and it was emotional. I'm not saying it wasn't, but it was really supportive, and it made it harder, you know. And it's it's not whether it's hard for for me or for the business. It's most hard for the people who this impacted and who don't have a, a job day to day currently. But you know, how understanding and how supportive they were, it just spoke to who this team is and was and uh, continues to be because you know we can't wait to get them back here. So on that note, I mean, it's probably hard to look out and think about this, but what are the goals for the future? I mean, I'm sure you had some before the lights got turned off. You know, yeah. Where do you think they're gonna change and how do you think they're gonna evolve? Short term, I mean, the goal is to um, make sure we're doing everything we can to keep this business moving uh, to make sure we're here when all of this is over. We feel like we're positioned for that. Uh, you know, hopefully we're positioned for much longer than this will actually take. So, you know, we're really very much in survival mode and I don't mean to be dramatic, but just there's so much uncertainty that like that's what our focus is and we're just playing a cash conserver- conservation game. We're trying to do everything we can to generate as much revenue as we can so that we're here at the end of this. When we get there, um, you know, our, our immediate hope is to build back up all of the things that we've had to take apart over the past couple weeks. And once we've done that, you know, our goal still as a business is to make other people as, crash, as passionate about craft beer as we are, to continue opening bars and restaurants uh, across the world, across the U.S., continue expanding our footprint footprint where we distribute beer. You know, we have an amazing hotel experience here, which in 2019, uh, it was one of Time Magazine's 100 places in the world that you have to see. Not even hotels, just places. It's really a unique, one-of-a-kind thing. We'd love to open more of those. Those feel really far away right now, mm-hmm. just given where the world is. But, you know, that day will come when we're able to think about those things again. But I, I even think... You know the reality of building back up like 
you know, building our cash position back up so that those things are back on, that's going to take time. Even after the team is back, uh, putting ourselves in a position to do those things, we just don't know when that's going to be yet. And we're not going to know until this is behind us. Well, if it's comforting at all, I think Mike and his fiance are going to single-handedly support you with Elvis Juice over the last two weeks. The amount that I've we have watched been consume drinking is a lot of Brewdog. I will say that. It's always appreciated. I'm big, and we're drinking Elvis Juice right now, although Josh asked for one and then didn't open it, so I'm curious if he's like planning on drinking it on the ride home or what's he, what's he doing. But uh, drink responsibly, people. Don't be like Josh. And so I think good place to pivot towards our last question of the show, and we're going to ask both Jason and Tim. So we're springing this one. But the theme on the show here at Conquering Columbus is live uncomfortably. And without telling you guys too much about why we chose that particular phrase for our show, what do you think of when you what do you think of when you hear the phrase? How does it apply to your life and career? And we'll start with Jason. Uh, well, what I think when I hear that is um, you always have to be pushing yourself and you always have to be looking to make change if you ever get too comfortable and are just happy where you are and things are static uh, you probably stop growing as a person and uh, it's easy to get complacent so when i hear that it's um, you know i try and you know work with our team here that way i try and think about my life at work or outside of work that way getting comfortable being uncomfortable is something that we talk about here because you got to push yourself you got to figure out what that next iteration is going to be and if you're not uh, thinking about that, someone else is going to beat you to it. And, you know, working in craft beer now, working in, you know, apparel before that, there are elements of what we do that this is a commodity. And if you're not forward thinking, if you're not thinking about what you're going to do that's different and innovative, you're going to get left behind. So when I hear that phrase, that's what comes to mind for me. Perfect. Tim? What was the phrase one more time? Live <laughs> uncomfortably. Live uncomfortably. So, so the question is, what does that mean to me? Or how does it, how does it, how, what, how does it resonate with you? How does it apply to your life and career? What do you think about when you hear it? Um, so, right off the top of my head, I recently took a job which I have never had a like a big boy job before. So I'm about two weeks into, you know, uh, I'm the I'm a company man now or whatever. <laughs> um, and part of my problem for the last year of my being feel, feeling unfulfilled or whatever, I don't want to get into like woe is me or whatever, but I was like kind of in a dark mental place. I felt like I'd accomplished a lot of things that I wanted to and the result wasn't as satisfying as I'd hoped. And I was just in this, like, I make enough to survive. I'm not challenged. I have, you know, my basic needs are covered, but I'm not happy. So I was like, okay, what do I want? What, what, what can I, stop I, I, me, me, and where am I a bit able to provide value for someone else, you know? And this this whole situation is is really amplifying that I guess what, what what advantage do I have or what skill do I have that's not hard for me but maybe for somebody else and how can I, I mean, donate sounds like so altruistic but it's not hard for, for me to do something and so uncomfortable is okay the, the standard thought process is self-preservation okay let's make sure that I'm healthy my my loved ones are healthy and then spend every moment outside of that trying to make other things better and not for me feeling good because I was sad, but that is a byproduct of it, you know? And it's uncomfortable because it's not seeking out bettering myself. You're turning down time that could be making you money to give away money, but in the end, it's making everyone better. And I think a we-win situation is better than I win. And in turn, you're, I think you're, at least I hope that I'm 
making myself better in the end. Better is a, a rough word, but when when I helped to contribute to a community, everyone is uplifted. And so with this being such a low point for the community, I think just finding ways to do that has been the most like uncomfortable thing for me. Reaching out to people, just thinking outside the box. I mean, I'm using all these like, you know what I mean though. And so I think that's what, that's the first thing that thinks to me. It's like, I completely just changed my life because I was unhappy and then this hit right away. And so it's like, this is a whole new experience for me, but rather than being, oh no, that I'm unhappy, this is uncomfortable. How can we turn it into a positive? You're probably one of like the only people that started a job in the last two weeks. As well. I, yeah. Like yeah. anywhere in the country. So and that whole process that is crazy. <laughs> like um, I could get into detail, I won't, but like the, the other offers that were there and the opportunities and stuff like that. And when I ended up choosing these guys, you know, it's like, it just felt, I got a piece about it and it just felt right. And then watching what's happened to some of the other companies that were, uh, pursuing me and some of the other ones that I, you know, had a, mm. that could be cool because there was like pluses and minuses in every sure. company and the way that it worked out, man, like, um, it's kind of a little bit of that, you know, right place, luck, perfect storm situation currently. Um, just my, the way that my life has been in the last year to like where we are right now. And it's, uh, yeah, it's like, I'm very thankful for it. So I, I feel like I almost owe something, you know, mm-hmm. to give back. Yeah. Yeah. Tim and I work together. Now that started off. I thought you were going to say it was uncomfortable working with me, and then at the ending, I thought <laughs> that you were going to tell okay me to that say you were that it happy is that you chose it because of me. So it was a roller coaster. Yeah. Yeah. No. But all, all the above. No. I mean, it was just. I like I said, I don't want to make this all about me. It's just like I could go on for like hours about how life has been crazy in the last year, and from outside looking, everybody was like, "Oh yeah, he's like got it together," and it's like I feel like I really didn't. And does anybody feel like they have it together? Yeah. I think everybody thinks everyone think else has it together. That's and <laughs> it's just like your hair or your clothes. You know, you're always worried about what you look like, but nobody else ever notices. <laughs> I, I often tell myself, no one knows what they're doing and everyone's full of shit. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's always, you know, that's, there's a level of truth in that. Always. Yeah. Well, you guys can speak for yourself. <laughs> Josh yeah. is bluffing. But uh, no, gentlemen, guys, thanks so much for joining us today. Tim, thanks for being here. Can I throw one in more room? in just real quick? Okay, yeah, we, got we got one more. We got one more. I'm just curious. So, and again, like, Obviously, the times are very different, but is there anything you being, you know, a Columbus native that BrewDog is trying to do specifically for Columbus? Or is there anybody you're working with or anything that you have coming up that's like Columbus specific versus just the brand as a whole? If not, that's fine. We can just cut it. and. No, and I would say, on. I mean, by far the biggest customer base that BrewDog has in the U.S. is in Columbus. Uh, by far the biggest uh, equity shareholder really? base that BrewDog has in the U.S. is in Columbus. So this is our home. When I was um, in discussions about taking on this role, I really wasn't thinking of it in this way, but they were. Having someone that was from Columbus and had ties here was a real plus in their mind because they, even though they're from Scotland, you know, James, who's the CEO of the global company, he owns a house in Canal Winchester and Columbus is a second home. And they, they really wanted to have someone that had ties here. So I, cool. I think Columbus is very much our home. We want to continue growing here. And, you know, when we've entered this time, like the biggest line and really the only line of business we have is selling canned beer to grocery. We do that in 15 states. But the penetration of how we sell beer in Columbus is so much greater than other places. And we want to change that. We want other places to get to Columbus's level. But Columbus is, has been so good to BrewDog that it's very much our intention to continue being a part of this community, being based here, growing here, because uh, it's, it's just part of who we are. Cool. I'm excited that, that we got one in there. Well, we got our own <laughs> native, so that's cool. Yeah. Thank you. That's great stuff. Well, uh, Jason, thanks so much for taking the time to talk about BrewDog and everything you guys have going on. Appreciate it. 
Thanks for having me. This was great. And Tim, thanks Dude, for being a guest interview, man. man. It was fun. Yeah. Let's do it again. Yeah, let's do so, it. So, uh, Conquerors, if you enjoyed that episode, check out all the links down in the show notes. Go support BrewDog. Buy BrewDog in the stores right now. They could use the help. So, everybody go buy some Elvis get juice it and everything Mike. else. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're going to have to fight me for the Elvis juice, but uh, everything else, go buy that. And uh, go check out Only in Seabus on Instagram at Only in Seabus. And uh, again, support everybody here. Check out the links down in the show notes. Stay at home, and we will talk to you next week. Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like. Share us on Facebook with your friends. We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus, and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to work with like-minded businesses to raise money and participate in large-scale volunteer efforts and improve educational opportunity for youth in our community. To learn more, visit smallbizcares.org that's smallbizcares.org. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And now I'm going to kick it back to Josh to tell you about our last sponsor, FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. If you could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.